If you've ever wondered, outside of the media hype, what sort of damage we're doing to the world's oceans, then this conversation is for you. I speak with marine biologist Sean Robinson, who's an expert on the study of shellfish and sustainable aquaculture. We discuss a holistic view of aquaculture that combines elements of biology, physics, economics, sociology, and government policy. Our conversation ranges from diving with a giant octopus and doing research in submarines, to life cycle of fish and designing experimental farms, to the politics and economics of what ends up on your plate. I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens podcast. If you enjoy these conversations and want to help support me, the best way you can do so is by liking, sharing, and subscribing. And now, I'm pleased to bring you Sean Robinson. I hope you enjoy. Escaped Sapiens. Sean Robinson, welcome on the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So let's start with a sort of get to know you type question. How did you first become interested in marine ecology and aquaculture? Was it that back then you were worried about the state of the world's oceans or was it still that you were interested in discovery and new things? What was the drive back then? Oh, I think it's, I think I've always had that drive. I mean, even as a kid, I mean, I grew up in for a part of my life in Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island. And I mean, I was on the shore all the time, dragging stuff along, watch Jacques Cousteau, of course, in some of my earlier formative years, like a lot of my generation. And uh, so I was, I was hooked on the ocean right from the get go. And so that led to me doing, you know, an honors degree at Acadia University, and it led to me doing a master's degree at Simon Fraser with Brian Harwick out in BC, working on the giant Pacific octopus. And then it led to me doing a PhD out at uh, UBC, you know, on marine, um, you know, biological oceanography and fisheries linkages, you know, out in the Strait of Georgia. So, I mean, I think I've always had this bug and, um, the fisheries and aquaculture are all, you know, parts of the same puzzle as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, from marine production, you know, from the sea and I, that's always been sort of my theme. So, so, so what does, uh, what sort of research projects get you excited then? And is a standard day out in a scuba tank uh, under the ocean sort of observing or what, what does it look like when you're actually doing research? Well, I, I think my background is as an ecologist so it's it's one of these you know jack of all trades and master of none almost so i mean as an ecologist you're almost like the conductor right you need to understand how all the parts of the system work together and i think that's that's sort of been my focus you know for um for a lot of it and and that's sort of brought me along into looking at systems like how does the system work you know for example my phd was on uh larval pacific herring and, you know, herring spawn in up and down the BC coast, but they don't spawn everywhere. And the question is, why do they spawn? And, and, and spawning beds are, are stable over long periods of time. I mean, they go to the same areas every year. And, and you, could, you could change the name, like from Pacific herring to, you know, to mackerel, to sharks, to whales, to seals, to snails, to whatever. I mean, the, these strategies have been worked out over, over you know, millennia. And, and so trying to understand why they do what they do gives us an insight in how the environment works. So that's what, that's what sort of stirs my juices. So, you know, we found that, you know, the herring would spawn in areas that were high in primary productivity. 
mm-hmm. you know, and and that there was retention areas there. It's almost like nursery areas that would keep these larval fish in place while they do that. And you know, when you expand that, I mean, how do fish stay on on uh, on seamounts right out in the middle of the ocean when there's tons of current going? I mean, how do you get any fish on there at all if they have a larval stage? Well, mm-hmm. the point is, is that there's there's physical processes that allow them to stay there and provide you know nourishment for them and trying to understand how that works is key to understanding how to manage it or leave it alone or whatever we decide we want to do with it. So that's always been my drive, trying to understand the system and then how can we fit into that system? Hmm. And that's how really to, the art. How do animals know to go back to the spawning grounds? I mean, is this somewhere in the genetics that this information is stored or do they learn off each other? Because some species for example salmon they die after they spawn right so no one can teach them you know how how do do they know to go back to the same space uh plots which can be huge distances away right well i think there's 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 both a genetic and a learning component to it right i mean if you have a multi-year class population then older individuals in that population can become the lead you know to do it and you see that already with um Oh, you can look at, at, at herding animals, right? Wildebeests, whatever, elephants, uh, birds, you know, like the, the mature members of the flock do that. And it's not surprising. You will probably find that in fish too. Um, so that's one way. And of course, there's also a genetic component. I mean, if, if there's a selective advantage to being able to recognize natal waters, for example, in the salmon, right? You go into that water and if you if you know if over you know millions of years your genes have evolved so that you remember that particular smell and that becomes embedded mm-hmm. you know then then you can come back and it's not magic i mean it's just that they've had the the luxury of millions of years to kind of get it right and those that don't of course don't contribute their faulty genes to the population you know to our, for that so you can see how that would work um, there's physical areas that retain things. And that was part of a, it's one of the classic fisheries theories, right? The, the member vagrant hypothesis was put forward by a couple of scientists, Canadian scientists, actually Mike Sinclair and Derek Isles, you know, talked about, you know, how do populations exist? And they suggest that it's the size of the retention area that does that. So, you know, are you familiar with gyres? Not at so all. Gyre, so <laughs> gyres are, okay. So gyres are just like whirlpools. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you think an analogy would be, you know, when all the leaves fall in your backyard in the fall, mm-hmm. right? They don't always evenly coat your yard. They they pile up in certain areas because the wind blows them there. Right. And that's the same in the ocean. And those areas where leaves accumulate in the ocean, they're called retention areas. And they're basically whirlpools and circulation patterns that tend to maintain things. So when you get these 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 zones of retention that allows a whole bunch of other dynamics to happen, such as stratification of water, maybe. Mm -hmm. If it stratifies, then perhaps it's a bit warmer, perhaps it's more productive because phytoplankton can get more light and more photosynthesis going on there, which then trickles down the whole food chain. And now you've got all the the sort of, you know, zooplankton there, which attracts fish and and all the way down the food chain. You see the same things with upwellings in the Benguela current off Africa, you know, all of these things that go on. Are, are things that animals key into and we're we're you know oblivious to a lot of them so it's up to ecologists to try and figure out where that is and you know what it means 
if we're oblivious to a lot of these uh, aspects, h- how on earth do we breed? So, so later on, we're going to talk about aquaculture. H- how how do we breed salmon then? Because their natural life cycle has them swimming upstream and all these complicated processes. How do we put that into a cage? Especially if we, for some of these species, if we don't know the full life cycle. Well, we do know the life cycle of salmon. I mean, that's not that's not new, and mm-hmm. because of the the primacy almost of you know the salmon, you know, Atlantic salmon has been studied for a long time by by Canadians, Norwegians, the you know the British, um, the U.S. I mean, it's been a it's been a key species. There have been there huge industries that were based on that before. Um, you know, like if you go to England or somewhere or Scotland, I mean, there's still areas that are owned or that were owned. I don't know what it is now. I'm not living there, but um, but I mean, there were massive rivers. They were owned by the lords, you know, and they had the exclusive right to fish there. So you know, this has been a long history of prestigious fish and. As a result, and because of the industry that went along, the canning industry, the, the netting industry at sea, I mean, they learned a lot about them. And the, a lot of the, the early physiological work, some of it was done in Canada here by some of the people at the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, I mean, led to a lot of the basic biology, understanding the basic biology that went into husbandry. Like, how do we? And then they started looking at stocking and restocking, you know, areas and, and catch and release. And I mean, that whole, that whole technology has moved on to either containment aquaculture where the fish are bred in and there, you know, it's like cows, right? I mean, the original cow or chicken does not look like the, the chicken that we're, we're eating now or the cows that we're eating now. I mean, they've been bred for husbandry. So those that are too sensitive, you know, like nervous, um, that those ones that are are gone. I mean, most of them are calm. They're 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 bred for being in cages and and whatnot. The the, the farm salmon that we eat is different to the wild salmon. Then I didn't know that. Well, it's it's the same species, um, but they're but it's like dogs and wolves and and that sort of thing, right? I mean, the a lot of the wildness has gone. Like a, a farm salmon is genetically different you know in mm-hmm. some aspects mostly phenotypically than the the, the wild salmon would they still they follow different... the would they still follow the traditional salmon run if they were released or oh, that's gone? sure but yeah no what they're probably doing that um but I, they're probably not doing it as well and i don't know we're, we're getting a bit outside of my area of expertise on salmon behavior and, and what's going out there but but when you but when fish are you know accidentally released from a cage, they don't necessarily join a school of salmon and head to the you know head to the North Atlantic or something. Some of them may, um, but you know a lot of them will just mill around the farm because they've been used to um, you know sitting in a cage, swimming around, and being fed regularly. You know, whereas now all of a sudden they have to go forage on their own, and there's you know, things with big teeth out there that probably want to take them to dinner. So, um, you know, like sharks and other things. So, you know, it's a whole different world out there. Hmm. At least like releasing, you know, somebody who lives in, you know, downtown, third generation downtown, <laughs> uh, downtown London or, or Toronto and or New York and dropping them in the middle of the, you know, Kalahari the or somewhere. North. Yeah, or the Kalahari. I mean, you know, they're going to last for a day. well then let's jump back into something that's more along the lines of what you've been working on directly i I was looking through your papers and i think 
correct me if I'm wrong here, the first paper that I saw was in 1983. So that's 40 years ago. Yeah, that's probably right sometime around there. So, so the obvious question is, what what's changed during the course of your career then? Have you, have you, have you seen obvious changes uh, in the ocean itself? Um, have fishing practices changed? Um, how has how our understanding developed in that time? It's a very broad question, but <laughs> if there are some standout features over the, that those 40 years. Um, how has it changed? I think it's changed, like there's there's a number of elements. You could look at that at a, a number of different levels. You know, how is the whole fishery perceived and or the marine food production? I mean, initially it was fishery because there really wasn't any aquaculture, at least not in the Western world anyway, to any great extent. Um, I think people have lost contact with the oceans and the things that go on. Like if you went back a hundred years um, and that's, that's about the age of our discipline, really. Right. I mean, if you go back to the 1920s, I mean, this was pre computer, pre a whole bunch of things. And I mean, we were basically looking at fishing, but people were aware of the communities and the fishermen or the fishers that were in the community. Um, you know, they brought revenue in, was it a high social status? Probably not. Um, because, you know, there's tales of, you know, fishermen's kids going to school with, you know, what we consider a gourmet meal right now, like we're taking lobsters to school and all of a sudden, you know, trading for peanut butter or something like that. Um, but, you know, I think we've lost a lot of that. I mean, if you look at the, the portfolio, the political portfolios that are put out, you know, the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans probably isn't one of the plum positions as opposed to the Minister of Finance and whatnot. <laughs> and, and so you, you see the, the support for fisheries going down. And so how has it changed? I think we're, I think it's less important in Canada right now than, than it has. Now, that's not to say it's not important regionally. It's just that on a, on a bigger basis, and Canada is just a reflection of everywhere else, right? I mean, it's just one of the, the G7 countries, and they're part of, I think you'd probably find the same patterns going through the EU and going through um, the US and, you know, other things is that, you know, fisheries are interesting, but they're probably not, they're not producing the same amount of revenue as, as some of the other industries there, but they're important to regional economies. So the small towns that are, that are based on that, that may not have farming or, or other things available. So, so how has it changed? I think that we're, we've been looking at technology's grown tremendously. So, you know, when I first started going out, I mean, I was, it seems like I've always been associated with fishermen going out with them. And some of my earliest ones were open boats, you know, like they were probably, I don't know, 10 meters long, maybe. And, but they were open. I mean, there was the tiny little, you know, cutty, which was, you know, maybe a meter by a meter by a meter high in the middle of this, looked like a big dory. And uh, we would head out into the fog. There was no radio, just a compass. And uh, this guy would go out and come back and pull traps and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, now the boats are all programmed with, GPS plotters and autopilots and radars and sounders that can differentiate bottom types and pick up fish schools and track them. And I mean, it's, it's incredible what's out there on the boats to, to, to navigate. And, you know, the hydraulics, the, the power of the boats, the fishing power has gone way up and uh, you know, the, the degree to which they can range some of the, we've changed a lot of our management 
methods out there used to be wide open fisheries for the most part but then that went to sort of well there needs to be a quota on it like we're capping what you're allowed to catch and the, you know there's um then some of those become individual transferable and it becomes more of an economic basis and bigger companies have emerged from that that control large sections of some fisheries not all of them um so it you know it's become large business for some of them and as we go international, I mean, internet, because of the fishing power that's come on, now we have the ability to go anywhere in the world and fish anywhere at any time. And, you know, China's kind of showed that with, uh, you know, the ranging of their international fleets around the, you know, in all the oceans of the world. So I think, you know, that's changed. I mean, we have aquaculture that's come in over the last 30 years. Um, and, you know, that's gone from small mom and pop operations to large multinational companies now that are, you know, integrated and, you know, vertically integrated right from feed production through production to processing to healthcare to you name it. So there's, there's been a massive change in the, in the, in the industry, like the, the fishing or in, in farming industries and in the oceans. Um, but you know, we're still, we're in that, we're in that weird area of we're between, we're a tweener almost, right? In the sense that we're, we're on the oceans, we're migrating now between hunting and farming. Mm. And, and we're in the, all of the, all of the social, you know, social upheaval that comes when that comes around and all of the social mm. implications of it. When you were traveling with uh, fishermen on, the, on their boats, was that purely for research or were you also playing a regulatory role uh, in those trips? No, I, I've, been, I've been pretty much the, you know, the, the white hat guy. So going, I'm, I'm a researcher that goes out with the fishermen and, you know, talks So to they them. don't I'm mind you very, on the boat? No, no. I mean, they're not doing anything illegal while I'm there, but, um, but we can talk about things and they can, you know, they'll tell me things that they probably wouldn't be telling to an enforcement officer or something like that. Um, but you know, but I ask them, you know, questions and give them answers that they're looking for too, you know? So for example, I mean, I was just playing hockey today and, um, you know, I gave one of my guys who play, we play hockey with, he's a fisherman. Mm -hmm. So now he's going to take a little thermograph and he's going to put it on the, uh, on his traps. And, uh, so we'll just, he'll just monitor some temperature, bottom temperatures for me for free, you know? And, um, uh, so it's, it's like work, I, I've worked with fishermen and developed a reasonable working relationship with them. Does it actually have kickbacks for them as well in a sense? Can you increase their catches or is there, <laughs> is there anything where you can help them in the other direction? Not really, but I, well, I can provide them information, right? Which backs up some of their, their cases, you know? So for example, we had one year where I was, you know, me and my team were looking at water temperatures in and around the area. Like, you know, we're monitoring them for our long-term monitoring program. And, um, you know, so we had data from the previous winter that showed that the water was, you know, colder than usual, you know, so it was about two degrees colder than, than normal at this particular time of year. And that particular time of year was when the fishery started. Mm -hmm. So in the spring and, um, so they argued that because they got a, a, a slow start and like they weren't catching the lobsters, like the lobsters weren't moving, that maybe, you know, they would like the season extended another two weeks. And uh, so they asked if I had any information that would back that claim up. And I said, yeah, we do. So I, I gave them, gave it to them and gave it to the managers and they looked at it and 
said, okay, that seems reasonable. You know, data that are collected are, you know, they're valuable. Even if you don't know what they're mm-hmm. to be used for at the time, having a historic database of, of information that you can use either as a baseline for comparison or to predict trajectories into the future, you know, for modeling, I mean, is extremely valuable and sometimes not always recognized as such. You mentioned uh, in a previous answer about these Chinese ghost fleets that are going out and uh, hitting various regions in the world. One of the things I'm interested in is uh, media representation of uh, problems in the world's ocean. So, you know, if, if, if you watch basically any news coverage, you'll see stories about, um, well, in Canada, whales being caught in lobster nets, or you'll hear about population collapse, or you'll hear about, you know, 70% of sharks or um, seabirds uh, have, you know, died, or there, there are these stories that are sort of fairly alarmist. And the thing is, I don't live anywhere near the ocean. And I don't have any way of really verifying any of these uh, stories myself, except for, I suppose, reading through uh, the literature. So I'm curious, do you think the public is well-informed and has a good idea about what is important about uh, what's going on in the oceans? Do you think we're worried about the things that actually we should be worried about, or or is the representation not good in in your opinion? Hmm. So that's a wide open question. Um, I think, I think from a, a large scale look at it, I think the the public really doesn't doesn't have a good grasp of what's going on in the oceans. And part of the reason for that is everybody's busy. You know, in today's society, everybody's busy. They're on their phone. They've got this, that, and the other thing going on. There's no time. So a lot of the information comes in in sound bites and. Like if you're looking at if they're getting a news story on the the radio, the TV, on a blog, on a on you know whatever you're getting your news from, they're generally one or two minutes, maybe for the most part. I mean, there's some shows, there's some really good shows out there, like science shows that that do a good job of pushing that information out. I mean, I can think of you know in, in Canada we've got something on CBC called Quirks and Quarks, right? I mean that's a that's a good show that brings a lot of interesting science that you would never see otherwise to the the Canadian public, right? David Suzuki on the nature of things. We did some sh- a show with him or two. So, you know, and that's a good, you know, visual medium that gets it out, right? I mean BBC Nature does a good job of getting, you know, certain stories out. I mean even Escape Sapiens, right? I've looked at some of the stuff that you're putting out. That's good. But the, but the range that or the scope that of people that that actually gets to is, is still relatively small. I mean, BBC is probably the biggest um, because it get carried around the world by different stations, you know, that are putting it out. But, but still, you know, the people that probably need to see this, you know, the people that are making the decisions and controlling where the money flow goes um, are not getting a chance to uh, to get educated on that. So with that as sort of the background, I think the media, you know, probably doesn't get as much of the story out as it can because they're looking and they're looking for sensational things because they're competing for space in their newspaper and their in their, you know, time slots. Something has to has to has to have some, you know, some sort of sensationalism to that. And 
so as a result, people get these sound bites. Um, some of them are taken, you know, and run with by certain special interest groups or whatever it is. But for the most part, people don't take a lot of time to figure out really what's going on in the ocean. And maybe they don't, maybe they don't have to, you know, it's sort of like, how much do you actually know about how your cell phone works? Right? Mm-hmm. You don't, right? You don't know much about the, well, maybe you do, but, um, you know, maybe you don't know much about the telecommunication <laughs> industries and how all of this technology works so that you can book a dinner reservation on your phone in some other mm-hmm. city that you've never been to before. But, you know, the, the advice on Yelp is giving you something there, right? Um, it's the same with the ocean. People assume that everything is working in the oceans and the, the media are kind of throwing little bits and bites out. But I don't think the general person really has a good feel because they're isolated from it. 80% of the people around the world all live in cities, so they're probably not near oceans. Um, and they, they're not getting the, the information that they could really use and they're expecting it to be out there. And in most cases, it's not because of the, you know, the ocean is not seen as um, a critical place to be investing um, large sums of money for understanding yet, except in cases where we want to go drill for oil or mine for nodules, or, you know, maybe, you know, harvest some very valuable fisheries like, you know, bluefin tuna or something like that. Then, then let me ask you about an area where people do may have a handle on, which is uh, or which they do interact with, uh, since people have limited bandwidth. So now, when you go to the shops, you might see um, if you want to buy some fish, you might see on the packaging there's dolphin safe lab- labels, various labels on the packaging, which which tell you you know this is the fish you should buy, this is the fish you should avoid, and and so on. What I'm curious about is, is our attention really in the right place? So do we have stickers saying this is dolphin safe because it's uh, particularly important from the ecological point of view and environmental point point of view that we look after dolphins? Or is it just that dolphins are charismatic? And so, you know, they're the ones that get a layer. You you, you see where I'm going with this, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think we're, I think the, the, um, the, the sort of NGOs like Monterey Bay Aquarium and Seafood Watch Program, um, others, you know, the, the Marine Stewardship Council, um, I think they all have a valuable role to play. Um, one of the things that you have to kind of recognize is that when man goes into the environment to harvest something, there's always footprints left behind. Some of those are bigger than others um, at certain periods of time, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, so for example, if you're, if you have a, a midline or, you know, a, a midwater fishery where you have trawls and you're looking for pelagic fish, you're trying to take those on hooks, then obviously you're catching fish and taking those out, you know, as opposed to a bottom trawl where you're scraping along the bottom and, and taking up, um, you know, bottom animals, as well as rolling it over the, the benthos or the, the, the sea bottom. So, so those are, those are different. When you look at what we've done, so just as a sidebar, you know, one of my early projects when I, when I came to St. Andrews was to work on scallops uh, or scallops, depending on which part of the country you're in. Um, but um, so I was interested in 
looking at how the survey worked. And as I was, you know, it's it's pretty much a, the, the trawl is so many meters wide and it's pulled for so long a distance. And then they multiply that, you know, so they figure out how many scallops they caught over that time. And then they multiply it by a fudge factor called a, scientifically it's called a, you know, a catchability coefficient. But basically it's fudge factor, right? And, you say, and that well, means how you know, many have escaped? That's right, because scallops can swim or, and maybe some of them are actually in little depressions on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they they turned and I said, well, how was that established? And they said, well, we, we think it came from George's Bank. And I said, well, does George's Bank look like the Bay of Fundy? No. And so I said, well, maybe we should redo that. And I said, well, I could do that. I can, I'm a diver. We'll just go down on the drags and have a look at it. So we we went down and we we resurrected this little underwater plane. The two divers could lay down and fly, you know, and get towed behind and get towed over the drags. Now you've got, you know, <laughs> you've got several hundred kilograms of, you know, of steel bouncing over the bottom with these steel chain link bags and stuff like this. And we went down to try and fly in front of the drags and we'd just take a video camera. Yeah, it seemed like a good idea on Wait, paper. Wait, so you're, at the time, you're in right? front of the troll? Well, yeah, we're going to try and fly in front of it. So the boat's towing the troll and then we're, but it's also towing us. And then we're going to fly what down. What happens if you let go? Well, then we're behind, then we just drift off into the back. Okay, it's not that you, you know, get caught in the troll. No, we're above. We're, we're, we're flying above it so that we can try and get the cameras to look down. And then we'll just analyze the video when we come back and say, but there's a scallop, there's a scallop, there's one, there's one, then count them going in. And then when the drag comes up, we'll count how many are in the bag. And then we'll have our direct catchability coefficient, right? Well, that's, that was the, that was the plan on paper. But when we got down, all of a sudden we couldn't see a thing. Like it was, no. I, I equated to, I think I told you before, it's sort of like a smoke bomber as you're going through like fire, fighting fires, fires, where you're into the clear water and all of a sudden you've got this huge big cloud of sediment with zero visibility. And then you're flying, then, then you come out again. And anyway, it was, a, it was a fiasco with regard to trying to generate any data. But what it did show me was the impact that scallop dredges have on the bottom because they're meant to be heavy they're meant to dig in and we do that and they produce huge amounts of of sediment in the waters which resettles down of course to the bottom but it does a whole lot of other things to the bottom one of them is that it changes the bottom so on a, a bottom with a lot of rocks so let's say they're they're random little piles of rocks all over well the scallop drags will scoop all of those up and then or a lot of them up and then brings them up to the boat and the boat picks the scallops out and then dumps all the rocks back into a pile. So what was a mm. fairly heterogeneous environment, you know, with rocks and all the little eddies and the ecological dynamics go around that are now piles of rocks, um, which set up maybe new dynamics. But the point is, is that if you towed this, um, if you towed this bit of gear across your front garden or your lawn, even once, you would be absolutely horrified. Yet we do that in the oceans on a regular basis because we don't really see it and we don't see what's going on. But if, if, I mean, if it was completely transparent, you know, and we could, uh, and general people could just sort of see what's happening on the bottom, then there really would be quite uneasy about how we're actually catching these things. Um, and, you know, you could talk about, you know, deep water fish trawls and, you know, going over coral beds. Now we try to minimize that and there's, uh, you know, 
you know, very talented teams of people working on that within DFO and other places, you know, all around the world, trying to protect these deep water corals from trawling that goes over them. But, you know, as an ecologist, you know that structure is one of the things that, that create ecological or ecosystems, right? Because, you know, three-dimensional structure, um, you know, will provide habitat, it provides food, it provides more food per square meter because it goes from a three-dimensional surface or from a two-dimensional surface, right? So lots of things. So it's really important to have that. And, you know, we, so some of the fishing operations, you know, don't do that, but we could be doing things like, you know, putting more organics in the water. And that's what happens from fed aquaculture, you know, unless we do something to minimize that. Um, all sorts of things that we do have impacts. And, you know, I think that comes back to, you know, how we prosecute fisheries and whether we even should in some cases. So we're doing so that's, the equivalent of tearing up the savannah to catch the antelope, let's say. Yeah, maybe something like that. I mean, it's it, now it regrows, of course. And but, you know, when we were doing some work on um, sea urchins. So, um, again, I found that being able to dive and be there firsthand provided a really good perspective. So, you know, if you as a, a story. So when I first got into DFO, I get to a, a sea urchin meeting. So I nobody was working on sea urchins at the time. So I said, I might as well do that. So I went to the first sea urchin meeting with the fishermen and they were they were sitting there with all their arms crossed and they mean who's this young buck who doesn't know a thing and you know and so i stood up for the moment and i was nervous and i said you know here's some graphs and all the rest of the stuff and i was showing them you know like growth curves that we got, got from the literature and um and it went over like a lead balloon i mean they weren't interested that's not their language right mm -hmm. and so the next time i said i'll fix that so I went down and I took a video camera with me. I just swam over the bottom, showed them sea urchins on the bottom where they lived and, and, you know, some of the other animals around there didn't mean anything. I showed it at the next meeting and all of a sudden I had all sorts of public credibility because I'd been where they hadn't and, and put it out. So we did, we started doing more work like that. And when they were using scallop gear in really shallow areas to harvest sea urchins because they had the gear, mm -hmm. I said, this is a bad idea. You know, like we're, you're tearing up habitat for things like that. And they said, oh, no, no, it's going to be fine. And I said, okay, I just brought a videotape and showed one dead lobster on it that had been killed by a rock rolling over on it, right? That changed the whole thing just like that. So, so they, you know, they're able to be convinced and, you know, we've seen that. And then- Is, is that because so, they are the same people that are farming lobster or- No, not farming lobster. They would be, they would catch, be harvesting catching. lobster, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that they could see that as an economic implication to them, right? If they're mm -hmm. killing their target species, then that's not good. And so we did a lot of work. And, you know, as we we're talking about the impacts on the bottom, so we, we started, you know, our water in the Bay of Fundy is fairly turbid, right? So you can't see mm -hmm. very much, except in the winter, like on calm days in the winter, the water's clear because there's not as much phytoplankton in it and you can see deeper. So we chartered a plane and flew up over you know above um where they were fishing and you could see this spider web of of drag tracks because they switch they switched to a, a lighter set of gear to go after mm -hmm. sea urchins but you could see the tracks on the bottom and they covered a substantial portion of all the shallow water areas where the sea urchins were and so over time 
these guys can, you know, if there, if there's going to be an impact, a cumulative impact, then, then they can probably get to that point where they'll have an impact, you know, in, in not too long. And so, but you don't see that unless we had, unless you're up there in a plane, you don't get a feel for the scales, which, you know, like a dedicated fisherman can actually, you know, cover. And, um, that happens every day, uh, you know, when we're out. But are they not seeing this uh, sort of impact on, you know, why are they not seeing low numbers of lobsters or, you know, your, your photo was enough to change behavior, but surely they should have seen just from the numbers themselves. Well, they shifted. Well, certainly the, I mean, all fishermen are pretty rational when you talk to them one-on-one -on -one and stuff like this. I mean, they have their objectives and, you know, management has theirs, but um so th they're willing to be persuaded, but it has to, you have to have a good solid argument for that. Um, you know, particularly if you're going to ask them to change their behavior or take less money, um, or, you know, in the, in the near term, perhaps, you know, by a change in, in size, minimum size or maximum fishing season or closed seasons or closed zones, mm -hmm. you know, so um, it's a, uh, I don't know. It's a it's an art form to try and manage, and I mean our managers do a pretty good job of that. But you know, it's you've got two opposing forces going there because mm -hmm. fishermen have to pretty well fish for the the here and now, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They 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 tend to maximize revenues um, for the short term rather than the long term because they can't really predict what the weather is going to be, and experience has shown them that you know, like the stock market the fishing like animal populations do not remain steady over necessarily long periods of time you know if you look at lobsters right now you know we were talking about that earlier but you know if you look at the long-term history of lobsters like the records landing records in the bay of fundy um, which is one of the better you know lobster fishing areas which includes nova scotia and new brunswick lobsters were pretty stable overall for probably 75 years and then all of a sudden, in like the mid '80s, they just skyrocketed like 700 percent, and the price went up with them. So it wasn't a, a supply demand curve. I mean, so now these guys were making massive quantities of money, um, you know, from the from the lobster side of things, and they maximize, you know, to that. I had some fishermen trying to, you know, going to try. We we're going to try and work on some scallops and enhancement. And as soon as the lobsters started going up, they just said, we're not interested in any of this sort of stuff. This is <laughs> chump change compared to what we can make. And, and I mean, for a hunter gatherer, that's what you do, right? Mm. It's, it's just like, it's the time of plenty you harvest. So. And, and is that, did that skyrocketing occur because, so my next question was going to be, you know, what happens when we take large numbers of fish out of the ocean how does that affect the different trophic levels are we seeing an explosion of lobsters because we've overfished or what's the dynamics there i'm going to say i don't think anybody really knows why they went up um if i mean there's there's correlations and fisheries often work with correlations right you look and see which populations are going up you can try to infer a, a fishing mortality and a natural mortality and and recruitment rates and i mean they're, they're really sophisticated and you know we've, we've put a lot of really good science into you know fisheries capture fisheries science um but 
And because we're really not, there's very little ecology going on out there in the marine environment as opposed to what's probably needed. We don't really know about all of these things that are, they're changing. I mean, if you look at the correlations, ground fish went way down. Um, so ground fish, meaning things like cod and haddock and hake and, and other species like that. Well, some of those are predators on lobsters. We don't know whether it was a release of pressures that, that, uh, that went off, but you know, when we change things, like when we fish, we know we're going to change the population dynamics of the stock or the, that mm -hmm. particular population, because fishing will tend to remove the largest individuals in the population. Right. Just just over time. I mean, if there's if everybody's got a chance of being caught, then eventually you will be caught and that the fishery will basically be run by new recruits or those juveniles that come in from from spawning. So the average size may tend to go down in the fishery, not all the time, but a lot of times it would. But when uh, you look what, at reaper, can I ask, is that a permanent ahead. genetic change? No, no, it's a, it's just size selection. Right. So if you if you start scooping, so you have. A population, once you're in the population, the only thing you do is grow, right? You grow and reproduce. And that your output with no fishery is you die, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the older ones, you get old and die. Same as us, right? Mm -hmm. And so the population grows either by immigration or by reproduction, right? New, new juveniles coming in. When you look at the, the reproductive capacities, so... If you, if you were to take your fastest growing, so let's go to agriculture. So let's say we have cattle or chickens, or you choose whatever species you want, right? If you have a particular individual in your herd flock um, that grows really well, um, that's really, you know, healthy and, you know, robust, and you kill him as soon as he gets to, you know, to harvestable size, you know, then you don't have that. I mean, in agriculture, you say, well, this bull or this cow is just, we're keeping that and that's going to form the basis of our reproductive stock. In the, in the wild, you get some of that anyway, right? With, with uh, you know, the most fittest, you know, specimen going on and reproducing more. And I mean, it brings in behavior and deer and, you know, getting harems of other female deer, you know, does. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in fishing, we basically take out the, the biggest, fastest growing individuals out of it because they have a higher mortality rate because they get to fishing sooner and mm -hmm. they get to spend more time in that window of harvest. Mm -hmm. So until they are caught. But often those biggest individuals have more, they can produce more eggs or sperm and mm -hmm. they, they could have higher reproductive output. So on the whole... We don't really know that much about that and what the particular strategy is and how would you do that anyway with fisheries but now that we start looking at um now we're looking at alternate forms like aquaculture or produ production of food that's now where maybe we can start looking at some of these more ecological principles of what do we really want to keep maybe we put a minimum maximum size you know for example in striped bass fishing um you know in the bay of fundy there's a minimum size and a maximum size that you're not allowed to keep. So you're only allowed to keep medium size individuals um, and relatively few of those. So, you know, the, the, there are some things that we can do with that, but because we really don't have a really good feeling and it's complicated, don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing anybody for not knowing this, but in order to do this, there needs to be a heck of a lot more investment into finding out what the, um, what the, the, the 
mechanisms are that you know make the world go round mm. particularly in the marine side we're just getting to the point now where you know we're 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 going to be relying more and more on the oceans to help feed us right we can't seem to get our mind around climate change and, and slowing the production of carbon dioxide mm. i don't know why but well i do i mean we're just inherently a species that is on the brink of destruction you know most of the time so um but i think that if we don't do something you know to to develop our oceans we're going to have you know you know things like um droughts so we're already talking about droughts in several areas in australia i mean if we look at some of the areas in southern california right where a lot of the food in north america comes from right i mean a lot of fruits and vegetables and stuff like that right i mean if all the water dries up in the southern u.s because of droughts then what do we do with that and mm. you know the answer may be to go where we don't need water like the ocean where we already have water and we have to change you know perhaps the species we eat and how we produce them and whatnot but you know if we're not looking there you know and, and have this vision then we're just going to bumble along until all of a sudden we've got a crisis so so how much more how much more productive could the oceans be if we moved away from just hunting towards industrialized uh, aquaculture well i think i think agriculture holds the answer to that question right if you if you look around look at the people of the world right now do you honestly think they could be sustained through a hunter gatherer society i mean no. the answer is no I mean, not even close, not even 10% of what we have now could be sustained by a hunter-gatherer, you know, approach. And so, I mean, on land, we went to a paradigm of agriculture. Now it brought a whole bunch of other social and ecological changes along with it. I mean, not all of them good, but, you know, we're there with, with uh, aquaculture now in the oceans. And so, I mean, I've done things like um, this back of the envelope calculation stuff where I, you know, I was at a meeting in, in St. Andrews here uh, with regard to the state of the Gulf of Maine. And I was looking around and talking to people and seeing posters and nobody could really say that the Gulf of Maine was sick. Right. But they, they had, you know, they had signs that, you know, this fishery is down. The seabird colonies don't seem to be doing as well as they could. There seems to be a lack of mussels like the blue mussel that lives along the shore. And that seems to be dying back in some areas. And there's more preponderance of diseases and there's more invasive species. So so I got thinking about, well, you know, in typical male fashion, you know, if you find yourself in a hole, the first thing you should do is stop digging. So I said, well, what if we got out of the Gulf of Maine? you know, what would happen? And I said, well, we'd lose all of the revenue that comes from that. And, and we would lose all of the food that comes the the seafood that comes from that. And I said, well, okay, so how much is that? So I went through from Connecticut all the way up to Nova Scotia and I mean, just go to the fishery records. And um, so let's add it all up. How much was this fishery worth and blah, blah, blah. And, and so I, I added it all up and uh, then I looked to say, okay, well, here's the total biomass that we're taking per year out of the, the Gulf of Maine. And, and so you know what the Gulf of Maine is, sort of speaking. So it's between yeah. Nova Scotia, down the coast of Maine, down into Massachusetts. So that whole, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a little Gulf. So a, reason, so a reasonable stretch. A reasonable stretch. So I said, well, 
what if we put it in? So the in, in Canada, I mean, aquaculture effectively means salmon or oysters and some mussels mm-hmm. and some other fish in the side. But salmon's by far and away the most produced species in Canada. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, that's what we have information on. What if we put them all in in salmon farms? How much, how much area would we need to put all of that revenue and biomass in in salmon farms? Now, I'm not suggesting it should all go into salmon farms. But when I do that, the math comes out that in 0.04% of the area of the Gulf of Maine, we could produce the same amount of biomass and revenue that would that all that we were taking out before. So if you were worried about whales, if you're worried about seabirds, we could get out of the Gulf of Maine and just have one small little area that we could grow it on, which would of course have to be distributed between Nova Scotia all the way down to Connecticut. So that's not to say we need to go into salmon farming or whatever. But the point is, is that if we got into more intensive culture, we could basically produce more revenue and more seafood, possibly in a more sustainable way to, to support marine industries and also to support the, the societies in, in Canada and the U.S. from the, the Gulf of Maine. But, you know, Europe would be the same, right? When we look mm-hmm. at what we're doing, you know, 80% roughly is what we harvest of seafood produced in Europe. Um, same in Canada, same in the, well, the U.S. is even worse because um, they don't have much aquaculture at all. Um, but, you know, we're still primarily relying on fisheries mm-hmm. and, you know, for our mean food production. And it's not going anywhere. I mean, we're, they're managing it as well as they can. Um, they're in some cases are doing bang up jobs in other cases, but they're only local success stories, right? I mean, if you look at the overall catches, I think your previous speaker was talking about that, Trevor. Trevor um, Branch. Yeah, Trevor Branch. So, you know, he was talking about, you know, Roughly, it's about 80 to 90, yeah, 80 to 90 million tons a year. But that's been stable for about, well, since the mid 80s. It's mm-hmm. not going up or down. So it's it's fluctuating. We've, we've um, so obviously somebody's doing something right there and stabilizing mm-hmm. some of the fisheries. But the point is, is that we have the human population still growing. We're at seven and a half billion people right now. Um, you know, if we add another 2 billion, um, mouths to feed, that's going to put more, everybody's eating now about 20 some kilograms of seafood a year on average. Mm-hmm. Um, when you do the math, that's coming down. Like we're not going to be able to produce enough fish to meet that in mm-hmm. Europe or North America or whatever, which means we're importing, but from where Asia's. You know, it's it's just uh, like there's a whole bunch of things going on. Sorry, we're rambling. But, uh, no, no, no. I, it makes me curious, though. So if you can, so if I understand, you could replace fishing over the entirety of the Gulf of Maine uh, with some industrialized, highly intensive aquaculture in a very localized region and still pull out the same amount of biomass. My, my immediate question is, where does the energy come from how you know what is the input that allows you to pull out the same amount of biomass from this really small amount of you know are, are you um are you feeding them pellets that of soy that were grown on land what's how do the numbers work there right so so you're as you get into the 
the nuts and bolts of this. Like I say, I, I would never suggest that we're, we should just fill whole Gulf of Maine up with salmon, but we should be looking at other things that we could be doing it with. Right. I mean, and that's going to come to the diets of you and I, like, what are you willing to purchase in the stores um, to, to eat? Um, you know, is it just salmon? Like is, if all you want is salmon, then trying to produce something else in the Gulf of Maine is, is, you know, is a useless uh, waste of time. So, but you could be putting it in. So uh, with things like extractive species. So maybe you, you grow more mussels, maybe you grow more oysters, maybe you grow more seaweed, but the, but this is where we kind of run out of, of, of options because we really haven't put any effort into trying to grow alternative species in there. Maybe there's species of snails we could be growing. Maybe we should be eating a lot more seaweed, right? If we look around the world at different spots, you would see places like Japan or, you know, I was in China and they have a massive number of species that they're growing. I mean, they produce some of them in hatcheries to get them over the vulnerable juvenile stage and then put them out either as recovery species, like on ranching type of things but they grow lots of snails and clams and whatnot in bags in the oceans. And some of them, they, in abalone, for example, I mean, you'd be familiar with those from Australia, yeah. right? Um, they put those in bags and they grow seaweed. So they've got sort of like this multi, what we call multi-trophic system. So seaweeds and maybe some fish, maybe some invertebrates and the seaweed sometimes get fed to the invertebrates. So you get this sort of recycling type of approach going on. Um, and, there's no reason why we can't be doing that here, but we just need to have that technology transfer or development for local species to do it. So if you look at that, there's, there's no, you wouldn't be feed other than the, the sunlight. If you're feeding them the seaweeds that you were growing, for example, mm -hmm. then really there's no, they're, they're extracting natural nutrients out of the water. They're taking the natural sunlight and you're putting that in, they're still going to be contributing waste you know, from the, from the snails or the abalone or whatever it might be. Um, you could put that down. You could grow scallops in culture. You could grow mussels in culture. I mean, all animals that are further down on the food chain, right? So they're only like the first or second trophic levels. And, you know, then you're not putting, you know, you're not killing other things necessarily like wild mm -hmm. fish to, to feed them. Now, in the same time, you know, like the, the salmon industry is, evolved way a lot from fish meal, right? They still use a lot of fish oils, right? Because you need those uh, long chain omega-3 fatty acids. But um, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot, there's so many things that could be done right now that probably should be done. Um, and, you know, we're, we're just not there yet. So I there's sort of this dream that through some sort of industrialized system, you could limit the amount of space that you need to grow, say the protein that you need or whatever the resources that you're trying to extract. Um, and then you could release the large amounts of ocean just to be wild. And you'd have this very positive impact through uh, aquaculture. But that's not really what happened on the land, right? If you fly over Europe and you look down, it's just farming as, as far as the eye can see mm. and th there are no forests. So you know, there's these two paths. You, you could go down this uh, utopic path where you you release space back into the wild. But again, you could go in the other direction where we just industrialize and commercialize every square foot of the ocean 
and we just become completely extractive in a, a much more efficient way. How is it that we, how can we go down to the first of these paths? Is it, <laughs> it's a too big a question to ask you, but let me do it anyway. How, how do we track down this path rather than the other? So how do we get to more efficient extraction or how do we how do we do it in a way that is actually good for the environment rather than just giving ourselves more efficient uh, more efficient systems which then pl uh, cover the entire oceans if you know what i'm saying right well i think we i think we need to understand carrying capacity you know like the and not only the animals carrying capacity but you know where we are in the human side of things um i mean a lot of our issues that we have right now covid global climate change you know is really human density based right i mean if we had half the number of people we probably half the number of you know issues with uh, with climate if we're going to fish then then one of our options might be is instead of trying to catch the maximum amount of fish you know and try and calculate that based on growth rates and mortality rates and recruitment rates you know in there um maybe we should just look at what the natural variability is from year to year mm -hmm. right and say well look the the stock goes up and down by a factor of five percent a year on average right and that's because i don't know there were storms during the breeding season there was more predators this year than last year whatever it might have been but populations have evolved over millennia to deal with those sorts of population variances, right? So if the population goes up and down 5%, they're okay. And, you know, maybe that's where we have to fit into, you know, and that would be looking at, at the sort of carrying capacity of, of, um, of the, uh, of the, of that particular environment where those stocks live. You know, if we're going to look at at growing fish, and let's say that we want to put in um, some fed fish, maybe it's salmon, maybe it's sea bream, um, whatever, um, then, you know, what's the assimilation capacity of the area? And there's people working on that now, right? I mean, if you look at aquaculture, oh, there's, there's probably four or five models that I know of already. You know, one of them is, you know, put out... Well, you know, by some uh, some people in Portugal, you know, and and others are out of England, and there's some out of the Western U.S. You know, talking about you know assimilation capacities on on farms and how many fish can you put in, and where does the waste go? You know, so they're already working on what's the sustainability of of putting it in. Um, so I think we I think more of that needs to be done, but maybe we should also be looking at things other than higher trophic levels as well. You know, mm -hmm. like salmon may have its role and in some areas, maybe we want that as a premium product, but maybe we also need to have, you know, um, you know, other products coming because right now, if we looked at all the aquaculture and agri, you know, the aquaculture and fisheries and we stopped all the agriculture on land, I mean, we'd starve most of the earth, right? Because we don't have enough aquaculture to produce that or, you know, enough food from the ocean to support people yet. Mm. So then what would your ideal, your idealized uh, or perfect aquaculture system be in the Bay of Fundy, let's say, Let, let's localize it somewhere. Um, you know, what's your analog of the cow, pig, sheep? <laughs> you know, what are the species you put into the system and, and what does it look like? Well, I don't know. We've worked on a number of them so far. So we've worked on, 
Uh, we've worked on blue mussels and we've worked on oysters and we've worked on polychaete worms. We've worked on sea urchins and sea cucumbers. Um, we've worked on scallops. We've worked on clams. Um, what else have we worked on? That, that's, I mean, th and those are the ones that already have ready markets for them, which were developed by the fisheries, right? I mean, these were natural stocks out there with a, with a market value, and that's why fishermen went after them, and that's why we decided to start working on them. But there may be other things that, that could be looked at as well. And, you know, if you ask for my ideal world, well, I'm not sure I have an ideal list of species, but what I would like to see is... You know, we're in a transition time now where we're we're migrating between, you know, hunting and farming now in the oceans, whether we like it or not. I mean, it's going to come. And, you know, already aquaculture produces more fish, fish than 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 wild capture fisheries. But that's on the that's the overall picture. And doesn't at all. I mean, the media has missed this almost entirely. Right. That's only true in Asia. Like aquaculture represents about 20% of all the production and almost everywhere else in the world. Right. And when you, when you look at that, so that's a problem. We really don't see that as a solution right now. And the only people that are really investing heavily into aquaculture and technologies along that is probably China mm -hmm. um, who need to do it, you know, to, to feed their populace. Um, so, you know, what would I like to see? I would like to see, a recognition that we need to move to more um, controlled development of our, our marine ecosystems. And we do that through maybe taking a page from agriculture. So at the end of the, the 19th century, you know, the, during the Victorian period, right, and, and before, but, you know, there was a lot of immigration that came out of Europe and uh, to North America, for example. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was because of famines and plagues and people that were being persecuted and people are just tired and wanted a crack at having, you know, a piece of property, you know, of their own. And but when they got here in Canada, I mean, growing apples in northern Alberta, you know, where it's <laughs> really cold, wasn't quite the same as, as something in southern France. And so, you know, as a result and agriculture was under the was under an improvement phase as well. And so experimental farms were set up and they were set up here in Canada and the U S and I would like to see the same thing happen in the oceans where if we're going to move ahead and somebody has to have that vision in management, you know, and political management as well. But if we're going to move into the 21st century, the end of the 21st century, you know, being much more uh, nurturing the oceans and cultivating them, then we need to get busy and do that now. All of the Western world needs to do this, Australia included. And I think it would make a lot of sense for, for national experimental platforms or farms or call them whatever you want, um, but that, you know, it basically becomes the development platforms to test out new species, to basically look at nutritional value, ecological impact, genetic improvement, strain selection, um, disease resistance, you know, healthcare protocols that need to go on, environmental monitoring protocols to make sure it works. You know, all of that could be done in concert with others. And I've had this conversation with people from the US and Scandinavia and whatnot. And I mean, everybody thinks it's re a reasonably good idea um 
but it really needs to have you know some political backing for that and i mean that's how farms were done too i mean it wasn't a scientist that was beating a drum saying we need a whole bunch of money and people to set up experimental farms which are still running after 100 years mm. but um but we do need to have a concerted effort and at this point considering where we are with um global changes that are coming with regard to global food production i think it's probably worthwhile to try and set something like that up and you know that spins off to things like um oh uh basically private industry that develops certain patentable you know items along the way it comes into monitoring environmental monitoring companies which are already here for the salmon industry for the most part comes into certification companies right and we talked about the the seafood watch but there's another one called good fish which is being developed um again by some colleagues of mine um where you know somebody can just use a qr code to scan it it's it's meant to go into grocery stores where you scan a qr code and it'll tell you not only whether the fish is good to eat you know monterey bay uses a uh, a red yellow green sort of stoplight thing but i mean this would tell you what you should look for like is this a good fish to eat yes what should you be looking for like what does a fresh fish if you're living in uh, i'm not sure where you are right now but let's say you were in the middle of london or whatever, how do you know what a fresh fish is supposed to look like, right? And what should you be looking at? What should you be cooking it with? Is it better served fresh or deep fried or, you know, is it a ceviche mm -hmm. or a sashimi? You know, what should you be looking for? And, you know, so we're looking at bigger ways of trying to, uh, to produce, um, you know, an integrated industry, you know, over long periods of time. And I think, you know, having new products being developed, tested, because um, you can't do that on commercial farms. Right? There's no way you can really get into platforms because scientists have to break things. Right, We need to know where the boundaries are and where the limits are. And if you're in a commercial production where you may have a couple million dollars worth of product in the water, they really don't want you monkeying around with the system at all. So you basically have to go and a lot of individual scientists can't afford a farm anyway to work on you know, with an individual research budget. So. So I think that's where I would like to see things going. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, when you ask me how I would get provide better food, you know, from the oceans of the future, I think that would be one of them. I think getting an international network of experimental platforms together that are all linked so that, you know, the stuff that we're working on here in Canada would be equally as applicable to Scotland for example, or to Ireland or to France or to Norway and vice versa, you know. But, but so do, do you think that scientists have a loud enough voice? Are there enough of you? <laughs> do, do you have the political capital to actually, it, it sounds like you're saying the main obstructions are really monetary and political rather than political will, uh, rather than any physical obstructions. Yeah, I think that's probably true. You know, I think, you know, if you look at, there needs to be a case made for investing in the oceans, which is fair, right? I mean, you need to put a business case forward to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I think this should be coming from managers, uh, you know, that are they're dealing with uh, the the either the the federal government or the provincial governments or state governments if you're in the U.S. or wherever. Um, I mean, I think they need to realize, you know, what the value of the ocean is and what it could be now. To be fair, if you look at the Horizon 2020 projects 
that were coming out of Europe, where they invested huge amounts of money into things, they realized they had a, a bioeconomy that they wanted to stimulate. And so, you know, you got to give credit where credit's due to Europe that did that. Mm -hmm. um, Canada's not so, it wasn't quite as responsive. We don't have a program like that. Um, and I'm not sure we really see that as a, a resource that we really should be developing as well as we can. There are institutes, you know, within Atlantic Canada here, for example, that that are doing a good job of bringing in entrepreneurs and trying to do some of that. But it's 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 reasonably small scale as to what's needed. I mean, we need a plan that, to go. And here I'm on my soapbox here, but um, but we need a plan that needs to be looked at in the hundred year time scale, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like that's that's like twenty five election cycles. <laughs> um, you know, and who's going mean, to, we actually need somebody to like a statesman to actually look at that and say, here's where we need to go. We need to have managers that have a vision to, to try and push it through because it's going to outlast me and it's outlast you, right? We're talking hundred years. We're talking about you know, like four generations of scientists, mm -hmm. you know, that will go through that time. But so, on that a hundred year time scale we are going towards aquaculture is the prediction that we're going to move completely away from uh wild capture and 100 of our uh produce will be farmed is, is that what you think no, is i don't happen? think so no i don't think so um i think we'll probably still have fisheries but they'll probably be local fisheries they may be artisanal fisheries where you know and you know maybe it's not you know maybe they get part of their living from fishing you know, for whatever it is that they, they need to produce. I mean, ultimately it'll come down to economics. If we can produce uh, a better fish um, from a culture operation than, um, than we can from fisheries, then that's where it will come. That's where the bulk of it comes from. When we're looking at commodity markets, I think economics is gonna drive everything, mm -hmm. right? But we still, we still hunt mushrooms. Right. I mean, if you go out looking for chanterelles or or whatever, if we still there's still wild, you know, there's still people at hunt regularly. I mean, I mean, when I go fishing, I mean, the fish that I catch is worth far more than an actual biomass. Like it's scary to think what it probably costs per kilogram. You know, by the time I get it home and I consider gas and the gear I've bought and the time <laughs> I've spent and, you know, any beer that were consumed during the trip, you know, it's just but the point is, is that people like that. If you look at mm -hmm. salmon, that's exactly the same way. Salmon are probably more valuable for their recreation than they are as a commercial species. Mm -hmm. um, and places like Iceland and Newfoundland and, you know, lots of places would, would, would kind of agree with that, right? There's, you know, if you look at the tour operators that are, that are there. So from a management perspective, should we be viewing uh taking produce out of the ocean as an economic position you know producing jobs this sort of thing or should it be recreation is it cultural how should managers actually view well i think that's their job to do that i mean it's like they're supposed to be the conductors of this operation and they need to understand all the parts of it right now from a from an ecologist i mean our job is to try and understand all the workings of the marine environment from a biological sense, including behavior and the chemical, biological, physical interactions that go on to produce the populations or why they live and how they produce, you know, biomass there. You know, 
obviously there's a lot of social issues that need to go on and economic issues because we can't isolate ourselves from those and they need to be equally as you know tuned to all of that sort of stuff so you know whether we're going to have more you know for some cultures the harvest of a wild fish is an important cultural event you could look at some of the aboriginal um, groups within Canada and in different parts of the world. That's an important part of their culture. So there needs to be a population that can withstand some of that, right? And, you know, if we have, you know, recreational fishing on lakes or whether we need to have people like in some places of the world, the public can go down and harvest, you know, crabs or lobsters or whatever. There's a small daily limit that you could put on that. You go to Washington State and go, you could take a, you have what, two or three traps that you're allowed to put out to catch Dungeness crab. That is, I mean, that becomes part of their lifestyle and makes that area very attractive to live in, you know, for those that want that sort of thing. There's no reason why we couldn't have some of that going on well, you know, as well in, in parts. Around here, lobsters, there, there's lots of lobsters, but the chances that the social and industry perspective is that there's no way they're going to allow recreational lobster fishing here, even though it probably wouldn't affect the populations whatsoever. But in the future, that that may very well be one of the things that could go on. And it's that's just one example of a number of things that we could go on to make, you know, the, the marine systems more productive, more, mm -hmm. you know, receptive to new things that would go on. And as a result, you know, we would have probably more protection of them as well. So with regard to dumping of, you know, various, you know, non-optimal ingredients into the ocean, either from, you know, wastewater treatment plants or just industrial releases or whatever it might be, you know, if there's a tangible value to it, rather than the tragedy of the commons, then, um, you know, you could do that. Do you think the ocean should be parceled up? You mentioned the the tragedy of the commons. Do you, do you think uh, every square meter of the ocean should be owned by someone to prevent uh, mistreatment? Let's say. I don't think so. I think there's 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 um, first of all, the ocean's too big to be drawing parcels up. Um, you know, you I mean the you have your two hundred nautical mile economic zone right from the different countries and there's enough you know jiggery pokery around how some of those lines were set up you know with you know islands <laughs> creating you know different zones or whatnot but the, the point is is that I, I think that it's it needs to be treated as more of my personal opinion is that it, it needs to be treated more as a, a public resource i mean parcel of lands or most of what we're talking about is probably coastal zone you know, bays and harbors and stuff like this. I mean, if we gave you, uh, you know, 10 square kilometers out in the middle of the Atlantic, you know, over the rift, I mean, you would have it and you could do what you want, but you'd never be able to work it, right? I mean, the technology doesn't exist for you to be there and mm -hmm. there's probably a lot better places. So we can't really parcel up the, you know, international waters, even the offshore waters are incredibly difficult. When you're out on a boat, you kind of get to feel what, the power is out there and what it actually takes to work and extract. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you get a real respect for the, the fishermen that are able to, you know, get a living out there, but um, I, I don't really see it going private. I could see leasing certain areas if you wish to create an aquaculture zone um, or maybe a fishing zone or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, 
but that shouldn't probably be in perpetuity. Maybe it, you know, it goes on to a 25 year or whatever the appropriate length of time is to do that. Yeah, so so it only really makes sense to parcel up the land, the the ocean, if you can enforce <laughs> ownership. Sure, and and there may, and you need to understand what that is. So if we look at if we look at the, um, you know, right now trying to understand fisheries is difficult because the fish don't really respect borders and they go where they will and they're not random, right? They will follow ocean currents. They'll look for certain temperatures. And those may fluctuate over time, right? I mean, if we have an El Nino or an El Nina, um, those those isotherms may be further north or further south. Um, so meaning, you know, like the, where the warm water is and cold water is. Um, and so, you know, the, those, you know, having boundaries on those um, may be somewhat problematic. And we may not understand all the things that go around there. But you know, so if you ask me to predict what that particular piece of bottom is doing in the Gulf of Maine, I, I would, I would be a pretty, there'd be pretty big error bars around my estimate, right? But if if you gave me a certain length of time to study, you know, like uh, a thousand square meters, right? Um, you know, under off a piece of shoreline here. I could probably, after a while, I could tell you pretty closely as to what was happening there and where the, you know, where things would be going, where do they normally sit out, what would happen if temperature went up or down a little bit here, um, you know. So, so that gives some, some. The point of that is that, you know, if we can increase the the food production density in an area then we can probably study that area. We could focus our efforts on getting much more information, understanding to, to figure out how that works. Right now, we're kind of all over the place and there's really not enough scientists working on this whole, this whole issue. I mean, there's modelers out there, but they're, they're always starved for data. Um, and we could be doing a lot better job. And I think if we did, um, you know, focus our energies to understanding an area. Maybe it's maybe it's zoned for aquaculture or for fisheries. Um, the little fishy areas would always be bigger. Um, you know, you could understand a little bit more of the dynamics that were happening there. Mm-hmm. And as we start looking at things like climate change, like water's warming up around here, right? We're we're in an area that's projected to have some of the more dramatic temperature changes, and we're seeing changes already. Right, with shifting lobster populations out of the southern Gulf of Maine. We're seeing changes to mussel populations up and down the shore. We're seeing changes in whales. The whales, like the right whales, have left here mostly and gone to the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Right. After I've been here for, you know, for for a long time. Now they've just changed because the food's changed. Um, you know, and so we're at a time when we really need to, you know, we need to pick up our game and and do more work on this as far as I can tell. Mm. This is a question that's sort of out of left field. Do you think as the proportion of um, of seafood increases coming from uh, aquaculture, do you think we're going to run into the same sort of ethical questions that we've already seen in battery farming and industrialized uh, agriculture uh, on land? So for example, chickens kept in extremely small are we seeing that or is this something that isn't popping oh, absolutely up no no it's it's been here i i think the whole the animal welfare which is what you're talking about mm-hmm. um has been an issue um in 
certainly recognized in the aquaculture industry for, I think I first started seeing presentations on that at various conferences probably 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, there's groups that are looking at um, whether or not, uh, you know, well, I mean, basic things like do animals feel pain? Well, of course they do. Um, but what kind of pain is it or do they avoid it and, and do they get stressed? So, you know, you can look at things like cortisol levels in the blood mm-hmm. over certain treatment conditions, what happens. And so there's, there's a number of groups around that are, um, they're already, you know, working on, you know, either describing the situations that captive animals are kept in and things that we don't even think about, you know, for example, if you keep, if you're going to go on land, um, and put animals in tanks, then you're pumping water. Well, mm. it turns out that the sound of the pumps are stressful to the fish, right? I mean, mm. if if we were torturing people, we would put them into an environment where it's noisy, right? Mm. And, you know, have this constant noise being fed on them, whether it's hard acid rock or whatever, it's something else. But but the, the point is, is that, you know, they're starting to look at what, you know, how the animals are behaving. And, and there's an overall desire to move to more benign, you know, culture techniques. And, and you can do that because you're controlling the animals. But when we start looking at, you know, other issues that, you know, we talked before about um, what else is going on in the environment. Well, you know, for those that use auditory signals like whales and, you know, and snapping shrimp or whatever it might be, right? I mean, we're putting an incredible amount of noise in the water in some areas, mm. you know, with, with ships going by. I mean, I've been diving while ferries have gone by and it's amazing the low level hum that comes from a mm. ferry. You know, as it's as it's chugging by you, and it's a couple hundred meters away, but boy, oh boy, you can sure hear it while you're underwater. So, you know, for those animals that are really sensitive to that, then, you know, there's a there's a whole bunch of things along those lines. Thinking about killing, even killing a fish now, right, for harvesting. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, I don't know if it's really so much in the fishing industry yet, but certainly within the aquaculture industry, you know, there's there's more humane slaughtering techniques. So as the animals going in, getting stunned before it, it goes in. So, I mean, they're going to be killed, but, um, but they're trying to kill them in the nicest way, as opposed to, you know, in a, a, a trawl, you know, the, the caught end of a trawl that comes up and dumped on the deck. I don't know what they, you can do with that anyway, but, <laughs> but you know, it, but we're talking about that, right? There's the, well, the, we, the, the Royal science, we, um, is, is talking about some of that sort of stuff now too. But so from an ethical standpoint, what would you say is the best fit seafood to eat? Is it, is it bivalves? Can you, can, should we view them? I mean, they move, they bury and they, they swim, but should we view them more like plants uh, ethically or more like animals? You know, I think that become it, it, what you're asking is a personal choice of where are you drawing the line between sentient behavior almost, right? <laughs> so uh, um, I'm... For me personally, I'm I'm happy eating meat. Mm-hmm. I I I want my meat treated right. I mean, I and I don't mind paying for it. Um, I we don't eat a lot of it. Uh, we eat some fish. We eat a lot of vegetables, that sort of thing. So, do I? We I I mean, I'm an invertebrate ecologist. If I had to <laughs> really classify myself down, so I mean, I like invertebrates, but I like all food. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that. I think that's important 
And it's important in a number of ways that we're thinking about. I mean, as we're talking ethically, yes, I think we should be as ethical as we can in our food production. I mean, there's, I mean, there's no reason for ignorance in how your food is being produced. But if you're if you're eating chickens, then you're basically condoning the slaughter of chickens, mm-hmm. you know, from however they were produced. Um, but I think that you know our our diets that we have and have that have evolved and changed over the years, I think they're they've been modified dramatically to industrial farming. And, and this is a slightly different topic that we're talking about, but ethics leads into what sort of foods should you eat that are the best for them and well, maybe not best for them, but because everything's going to die to get into our pot. But, um, but I think that, um, I think what we should, we should be careful of what we choose for foods. And, mm-hmm. um, I think eating a wide diversity, if you look at the, uh, you could look at, at seafood or food in general as not just nutrition that we're shoving into our bodies to get us from today to tomorrow. But, you know, we're also, food is also an integral part of our healthcare plan. Um, if you look at better diets, I mean, poor diets inevitably lead to poor health outcomes, whether it's obesity, diabetes, whatever. Um, and there's lots of studies to show that. Um, if we, I mean, the World Health Organization was recommending food because prescriptive medicine is basically bankrupting most Western societies right now with regard to trying to keep their healthcare systems running. Mm-hmm. Um, and so keeping people healthier and turns out a lot of the newer human research that's going on into microbiomes. So the, the, the bacteria and fungi mm-hmm. and viruses that naturally live in your body, right? They produce compounds, which are basically health promoters that go on. So you can read, um, books like Brain Maker by, I don't know, Dr. Perlmutter, somebody Perlmutter. I don't, um, anyway, I mean, they're talking about how a lot of these links of food are basically giving us better healthcare outcomes. So to take this back full circle, if healthcare is one of the outcomes of better food and better food is, you know, as a result of ethical choices, then we can get a win on that. And if we can get better health care outcomes from our foods and diets, then that comes back into the whole economic thing because healthcare in Canada is one of our biggest budget items. Healthcare and food and oceans are not just some little cute fish stick, you know, that, that's being breaded and sold with chips somewhere. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about a potential major social change to society of seafood and and food coming from the sea and that doesn't even take in what the new stuff is right whether we eat more seaweeds in our diet in whatever form i mean they don't all have to look like a japanese restaurant right i mean if there's there's lots of chefs that can make you know some incredible dishes using you know marine based products so, so for someone who doesn't eat any fish someone who's listening who doesn't eat any at all if they switch out you know one beef meal for for a plate of fish, what are those benefits? Well, the the benefits that you have from eating fish, um, and and it's you know I can't give you a cost accounting like if you invest this much on fish, you're going to get this you know benefit out of it. But if you look at fish, the first thing you get is food replacement. So, and, and you know, God knows I love a good sausage as well, 
But, you know, if you look at a sausage, there's not very many omega long chain omega three fatty acids in a sausage. Right. So if you had a piece of fish for that, now you are going to get it, particularly if it's an oily fish or if you eat mussels. There's also lots of long chain omega three, like the EPA or DHA, uh, the cosapentanoic acid and the docosahexanoic acid. But those are the long chains that we can't make. They're called essential fatty acids. They originally come from plants, right? And they get like mercury concentrates in a bad way up the food chain. Fatty acids get also accumulated up the food chain, which is why you can get them in oily fish, right? Who basically get the, the benefits of a whole bunch of poor little algae making it, you know, several trophic levels ago. But, you know, the point is, is that you're going to get that from eating fish and you're not going to get you're going to lower your saturated fat intake from the, uh, from, you know, from beef or pork or whatever it is. I'm not saying don't eat them. I'm just saying that you need that balance in there and that balance that you're eating has to go in and it'll help your microbiome. If that research is, I mean, there's, there's no question that it's, it's a brand new field that we're going to go into, but I think it's time we recognize what that is in your diet is a major source of what your overall health is going to be. Mm. So well, on did the that answer your question. Somewhat. I, I was wondering if you had a uh, sort of uh, specific, you know, it, it helps your brain or it, it it'll um, oh, help. Sure. Your well, the, it's, you know, there's lots of things. I mean, there's a replacement of bad things, but I mean, if you're getting more omega threes into you and there's nutritionists that can answer this far better than I can, right. With the details, but but there's, but the long chain omega-3s are important in brain development. They're important in nerve transmissions. They, they, they're, they're involved in cell membrane integrity and that sort of thing. So all of those things are things that we would want um, it, with regard to brain recognition. Um, if you think about, excuse me, the development of young children, right? I mean, there's a perfect example. And you, you see some, you can see some, um, uh, advertisements on television for some yogurts, you know, that are, that are enhanced with omega threes or something like this for brain development or whatever. So I think, yes, there's, there's lots of reasons to think that we need to, to get more omega threes rather than omega sixes. So omega sixes are plant oils and we're, we're sort of really highly saturated with those. Like we eat a lot of those and not so much of those. Hmm. On the, Back on the ethical side of uh, eating fish, <laughs> just to hammer on this path a little bit more, do you think there's a bias? You know, the average person, they, they see a fish in a tank or on the end of a line struggling to breathe. Uh, do you think we have a bias against the intelligence of fish? You, you've, you've spent a lot of time with a scuba tank on your back. So do you think if people, more people could see fish in their natural environment, we would have a shifting bias or a shifting window for how intelligent we we think fish are? I don't know. I think it depends on the fish and it depends on what we're talking about with intelligence. You know, like the intelligence of a fish to school, to maintain itself in a school, to avoid predators, to, to feed while you're in a big, if we're talking about schooling fish or something like that. Um, there's there's a huge range of things that we'd never see. Um, would we say they're as smart as uh, chimpanzee? Probably not, but we're basing our chimpanzee um, intelligence quota on the uh, on us, 
you know, and, and what would we do and, you know, how close is it to the epitome of humans? Whereas if we put a chimpanzee in a school of fish, I mean, it wouldn't keep up at all. Of course, it's not morphologically adapted to do that, but it doesn't have a lateral line, um, you know, which is a pressure sensitive organ on the side of fish that can detect pressures. And uh, so it keeps it in the school. You know, um, I've been diving where there's, um, I was working on an artificial reef that I put down on the bottom near a, a farm trying to recycle some of the nutrients that were coming out of the farm into other products. And um, I was seeing this little sculpin. So a sculpin is sort of a, uh, it's sort of like a large headed bent that bottom fish. Um, this one was only, I don't know, maybe 10 centimeters long, perhaps. Cute, had little spines on the top of it and stuff like this, but he was staking out its territory. So he'd set up territory on this plastic artificial reef that I'd set down. And although I was, you know, I don't know, what, 500 times his size, he wasn't giving up any ground, you know? And, you know, so there's behaviors. Is that intelligence? I don't know. Um, but, you know, there's a, I think they're as smart as they need to be to live successfully where they do. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if we're going to be judging, you know, it, intelligence of fish, I think it depends on the, the perspective you look at them with. Yeah. So you said that you started your career researching the giant Pacific octopus. Did you have, did you ever swim with them? What, what are, what's it like with them in the ocean? Cause that, that must be very oh, intense. Well, they're, I mean, they can be, yeah, it was, it was lots of fun. I mean, there's no getting around that. So I was diving on the West coast of Vancouver Island. Um, and I was looking at growth rates of them. So I was putting a tag on the, the octopus and step one would be to dive down and look for an octopus den. So a den is basically a hole under a rock and it can excavate it. So a, an octopus is sort of like a, you know, it's got a siphon to it. So basically you can take water in and blow it out the siphon like a squid does as well. And um, so it would burrow, create a little den underneath a rock or in a crack or crevice. And it would have a, all the animals that it eats like clams and, and crabs and abalone and stuff like this would be in a garbage heap just in front. So it's called shell midden. And so you go find those and we would um, then get the octopus out. We'd put sort of like a, an irritant in the, the, the den. So like a tear gas and the, and the octopus knows that there's something out there. I mean, they're incredibly intelligent. So mm. they would often, they would need to get out, but they'll put an arm out first and they'll kind of wave it around and maybe something will take a bite of the arm and then they'll bugger off and then they can come out safely. Um, so they, you wait after that and they come out and you, you can scoop them up. Well, they're, they're really, I mean, they know what's going on and mm. they're, uh, so you have to kind of hide so they don't see you when they come out. And then once you, uh, once they come out of the den and they'll always leave one arm kind of trailing inside, you have to swim really quickly and then lift them up and get them up in the water. And then you can, uh, put them in a, a goodie bag where we put a tag on them and then to identify them, I'd weigh them and do some measurements on them and take them right back down and put them back in the same den that they, uh, they came from. And, uh, but they were, I mean, they're incredible. They're obviously ranging out every night. Um, they're they grow like crazy. I had some growing at the Vancouver Aquarium and, um, you know, they're incredibly efficient at processing food. Um, 
they're quite sensitive. You see them in an aquarium, they'll often be up in a corner or somewhere, right? They, they really want to be hiding. And uh, so, but it gave me a feel for the, you know, their, when you watch them, when I had them at the aquarium, I could watch them feeding on crabs and whatnot. And, oh yeah, I was like a bat from hell coming down on this poor crab. You know, like they, they just launch themselves on it and the crab gets two pinches and then the arms pull those off and then he's eaten. So, um, but they're, so their top predators are one of the top predators on the bottom. Although they're obviously prey for things like, you know, um, dogfish and, mm-hmm. you know, other octopus, for example. Yeah. But how big do they get? They're not dangerous to humans or? Oh, no, they're not dangerous. I mean, the biggest, uh, the biggest one I probably caught was... 30 kilograms maybe um but, but a 30 kilo yeah it's pretty big i mean it's called the giant pacific octopus for a reason so you know at, at that 30 kilogram octopus would have arms that would hang down probably two, two, two and a half meters maybe yeah so <laughs> so it was big enough that when i caught that one it grabbed my fins and um i had him and he had me and we just kind of settled back down to the ocean bottom and uh, and my buddy came along and we got him in a bag and tagged him and brought him back. But, but they only live for a year or two and, yeah. um, and they're done. So, but if, if you were alone with that octopus, could you individually put it into the bag or is it way too, cause it's just pure yeah. muscle, right? Yeah. But, but they're, they're, they're just trying to get away. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I've caught them by myself before. So it's, uh, I mean, bigger ones are obviously harder to get into the bag than smaller ones, but, yeah. um, but it's uh it's just a technique and like i say they're once you're comfortable down there they're not they're they're not big and aggressive i mean they come out and they look all badass because they puff themselves right up um but you know once you put them in the bag they're they're pretty docile i'd love to see one i've seen almost no octopuses uh while diving this is i'd, I'd like to see that and maybe a humboldt squid that would be <laughs> also very intense <laughs> yeah that would be intense but I think um, I'd want to be in it. You'd want to be in, in chain mail or something. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so I, I want to uh, wrap up the conversation uh, with some questions about the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so very simple question. Um, what's your dream for the future of uh, aquaculture, for fish farming, for, for seafood farming in general? And what are the developments that you're excited to see? Well, I think we've, we've talked a little bit about the, the, like my desire to move us towards uh, an international development of, uh, you know, a chain of farms or whatever around the world to develop techniques. I think, I think that's my vision for the future. It's probably one of the more important ones, you know, and I don't think we have forever to do this. I'm not sure we have a hundred years to do this in. Um, if, you know, we look at around the world right now with regard to social change, right? I mean, people coming out of Syria, people coming out of, you know, areas, well, even the Ukraine right now, um, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing economic migrants, we're seeing war derived migrants, you know, moving. But I mean, if, if we can't control our climate or get our climate under control, um, and we've run into droughts. I mean, if you read books like, you know, from um, Jared Diamond, 
I don't know if you read any of his stuff. Guns, right? Germs, and Steel. Gun, Guns, Germs, and Steel. But his second book was called Collapse. And it's why societies chose to collide, you know, to fail. And like a lot of the reasons for societies collapsing was due to droughts. And, you know, we're on that trajectory right now. I mean, if you look at a lot of agriculture around the world, they're, they're drilling into aquifers, which are, you know, old historic water and using that. If that's not being replenished due to an existing current drought or long-term consistent drought, we're going to have a whole bunch of other people looking to go somewhere. I mean, Canada has lots of water, but a lot of people in the U.S. may not. So where are they going to go? And, you know, how are we going to feed them? If agriculture goes down, um, we're looking at projections at, um, and I know this is a bit of doom and gloom, but I think this is the reality that we should be looking at and, and trying to develop. So that's why I think, you know, we need to look forward a little bit more, you know, maybe a bit more um, exhaustively or broadly to see where we, where do we need to go? My, that's, my biggest, if I had one complaint about management, it's that there's no vision as to where mm -hmm. we need to go. And maybe that's because of a four-year political cycle or whatever it is, but I don't think we can afford that luxury anymore. I think if, you know, I think we need to make a decision as to whether or not we need more food. If the answer is no, fine. If that answer is yes, then where are we going to get it from? And if we're going to get it from the oceans, then we need to get busy. And, you know, we need to have that ready because, I mean, just to develop a single species in aquaculture takes probably 15 years, mm -hmm. right? But from the time the basic research starts to trying various, you know, prototypes and, you know, phase one, phase two, and then, you know, from research and development to commercialization, you know, is probably 15 year period. So, and if we need multiple species and we need a more sustainable and blah, 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 we need to... Uh, we need to get started. So that's, that's one of the things I'd see for the future. I think we need to, my, all my analysis, and we talked with some of it today, um, was that um, I think we do have a food crisis coming up in the future. And I think the sea can be, the oceans can be a solution, a partial solution to some of that. But I think that we need to get busy and do something before all of a sudden we're in a crunch, um, you know, like we're seeing more storms and hurricanes, fisheries projections are only down. I don't know of any fisheries that are projected to go up because of climate change. And, you know, at some of the uh, aquaculture conferences I've been at, I mean, they're projecting things like rice to go down in production, you know, like 10, 20%, whatever it is. I mean, that's huge numbers that are going to have to be replaced with something. Right. And, and I think that, um, I think I sent you uh, a presentation early on with the yeah. last slide was, I mean, I honestly think that first world countries, G7 countries or whatever it is, have a moral obligation to, to do research that benefits other parts of the world, like the global South as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, maybe that's my socialist tendencies coming out, but, um, but I think that uh, honestly, we, we have a responsibility to do that. And it's no sense pointing fingers when we're in the crisis, right? Hmm. This is actually something that I had not appreciated immediately. But, uh, you know, when you look at the number of liters it takes to produce, say, a kilogram of beef, um, so how much water you require, that's is that completely taken out of the calculation when it comes to seafood? As in, you can effectively say there is zero liters of water required to make a kilogram of salmon? 
Yeah, it's, it's I don't know. It, it, technically, there might be a bit of water that goes into the diet if you're looking at prepared diets or or something like that. But it's it's minuscule. I mean, the, the fish don't drink, right? They're, 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 they're in an aquatic environment and they're getting the water that they need. Either they excrete the salt out of it or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the, the amount of water it takes to grow fish, other than the physical medium they're growing in, is is less um fresh water so that's in the ocean in 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 the the bays and you know freshwater rivers um yeah there's you, you'll still need that physical presence of water um to to grow them in obviously but there's there may be less and less of that right mm-hmm. do you want you know if 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 our water supply goes down and more of it needs to go to be dedicated to human drinking supplies do you really want a fish farm operation in your drinking water supply? Probably not. But at the same time, do we want industrial effluent running into our drinking water supply either? So, you know, there's there's a bunch of, you know, spin-offs. Fresh water is probably a little bit more problematic, although it produces an awful lot of uh, aquaculture like fish, just not in Canada or the U.S. or Europe. I mean, it's more in China. Mm-hmm. What about on the carbon side? If, if, do you know if, if if you looked at the carbon footprint of, uh, say, a kilogram of, again, salmon, let's just stick with something that people know, how does that compare to the you know, kilogram of uh, beef? Yeah, it compares well, but I, I can't say I can give you numbers right off the top of my head. But they've done uh, they've done an analysis like a uh, what's called life cycle, um, life cycle analysis. Um, and there's some people at um, at uh, Dalhousie University that are doing some of that, and they they do that uh, cost accounting in either um, what do they use? Uh, let's do with global warming. Uh, I it, I can't bring it in off the top of my head, but I I, I know that uh, aquaculture is is uh, compares well to mm-hmm. uh, you know for uh, for carbon for carbon loading. So essentially the message, if I understand it, is if you look at all sorts of me- uh, metrics from uh, carbon footprints to water usage to nutrition and health, uh, then really aquaculture is a sensible thing to look at. And if you want to put things in place in, in time for them to actually have a positive effect and really be useful, you have to be thinking on 15 or 20 year horizons at least because that's how long it takes to pull in a new or do the research for a new um, species or, or, or a new supply chain, let's say. That's right. So let's, and, and that's, and that's for, uh, that's for producing one of the nuts and bolts of this system, right? So if we're looking at a single species, but what if you want that species to, to, to exist in an ecosystem? So one of the things we were working on earlier on um, was something called integrated multitrophic aquaculture, which is mm-hmm. big mouthful, basically means mixed farming, but a selection of species for that mixed farming that are complementary to each other, right? So mm-hmm. for if you're putting a fed species in, maybe it's shrimp, maybe it's fish, maybe it's salmon, um, they're going to eat, but they don't assimilate all of their food, right? A lot of it goes out either as ammonia or it comes out as as basically a carbon-heavy um, fecal pellet or whatever, right? So that waste, because they strip a lot of the good proteins out and a lot of the fats come out of it. And so a lot of it's carbohydrates left. Um, that goes out, but that can get picked up by filter feeders, right? Those could be worms, those could be mussels, those could be whatever oysters perhaps, 
you know, that go down. And there's this is being tried in different parts of the world, but those are all releasing nitrogen. So you, so that's an inorganic molecule as opposed to a fat or a sugar or something like that. But that's what plants use. So seaweeds can soak up ammonia, or the sometimes ammonia gets converted to nitrite or nitrate um, by bacteria. But um, anyway, that's an inorganic molecule that can be taken out. So you know, it's the it's runs in that concept. If you put it in, you should take it out. Mm-hmm. And so this is another way of extracting some of it from you know the ocean. That you know, if you're putting you know nutrients in from food. If you're feeding something, then you can get that out. Maybe you don't have to do that. Maybe you skip the fed stage and you put in things like shellfish, mm-hmm. you know, like filter feeders of mussels or oysters or scallops or clams or whatever you, you know, choose your species, you know, and then you put seaweed in with those and those systems are going as well. Understanding the loading and the dynamics and the balancing between all of those different trophic levels are more complicated because you don't only have to know the biology of the animal you're talking about. You have to also know about their interactions with others and what the what the physical environment is doing. Like, what's the spread of of a nitrogen or a series of nitrogen molecules from a source? Let's say it's a, a sock of mussels. How does that go out, and how does that diffuse, and how close do you have to have your seaweed in order for it to capture anything? Because mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, as soon as you release something like you stir milk into tea. I mean, it goes white almost immediately, right? If you put mm-hmm. a nutrient in the ocean, it also diffuses out in a cloud. You know, sometimes currents and density differences can concentrate a little bit for a little bit longer. But, you know, there's a whole lot of more um, information required in order to build those more integrated systems. But those might be more ecologically feasible in the long term, if we're really seriously going to manage our marine environment. Hmm. And those same processes could be used in terrestrial systems too. They just haven't got there yet. Although they are using things like predators. So instead of spraying, you know, with uh, pesticides, they're using predators of the pair uh, the their pests that they have, right? So you can buy commercial quantities of, of um, ladybugs, for example, or lady beetles beetles or praying mantises or whatever to eat the predators that are, or the pests that are eating crops, you know. So, so there's, you know, we're slowly moving towards a more ecological approach to producing food. The, the immediate thing that springs to mind when, so the picture I have is that you have a farm where you have, say, for example, uh, fish swimming in, in some tanks and below you might have some shrimp and you have some algae or whatever it is in the immediate vicinity. But the question that I, that I have is these fish in the wild may swim over huge di- distances. And as you said, you've got diffusion in the water column. Can you get physically enough, you know, can, can you get enough oysters or whatever it is that you need in the vicinity of the of the fish farm to actually make a difference, you know, if, if so, 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 so you bring up a very good point, but you need to expand your thought to, you know, like we need to look at things other than the status quo. So maybe this sort of approach is not really going to work well for open ocean, open net cage things, but maybe it works really well for on land culture because now you control all of the flow. Right. And there's there's systems now. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're called aquaponics. Mm-hmm. So what you basically have is a fish tank 
and that water gets the the water from the fish tank because the fish are are respiring and producing nitrogen the same as us and that goes into the water and, and that water the they, they filter it usually, I think, but um, so there's solids and then there's the dissolved part of it. That dissolved part goes down to beds of plants, right? Where the bacteria and the roots of the plants and the systems are converting all of that ammonia to forms that the plants can pick up and grow. So whether you're growing flowers or lettuce or wasabi or, you know, choose whatever, you know, valuable plant you want. I mean, there's, there's talk. I mean, I suggested early on they should, because marijuana is legal in Canada now, and there's farms growing marijuana in controlled conditions, of course. I mean, why wouldn't you use the the nutrients, you know, from, you know, a double crop to, to produce more revenue, recycle it? I mean, there's, there's so many creative people out there that they're just not being diverted to, aquaculture you know and i think you know if we had more entrepreneurs and if we had a real formal system to do that we could we could come up with some pretty clever systems you know for vertical integration in in culture they're talking about doing some of this in cities right where you mm-hmm. just take a building and, and and put it in you know i haven't really seen any working yet but um but i think it's all coming i think mm-hmm. it's all coming then let me finish by asking you a fairly simple question but i guess you could take it really in any direction <laughs> you wish which i've done all day so far right <laughs> <laughs> well so the question is what do you wish people knew about the seafood that's on their plate I don't, that's, um, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, what do I wish they knew about it? The fact that they've got seafood on their plate to begin with, I think is a good start. Um, I think I would like them to know, uh, more about, um, ways of preparing it and the different presentations and the, 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 the huge array of things that are available to them. So it, like, it depends. So if you ask me if I was sitting in Portugal, for example, um, and you and I will say you and I are having dinner with friends in Portugal, some Portuguese friends, what would I wish they know about fish? They probably know more about fish than I do about, <laughs> you know, about, about what to eat and where it's, you know, and when it's available and when the best time to eat it is and the different preparations, you know, preparation methods for it. And so I'm pleased they know that. Be nice to, uh, you know, they may not know about some of the healthcare implications of it or how it affects microbiomes within them um, and whatnot. I mean, those are all sciencey technical details, but not that they're not un- they're not important. But I mean, if all they knew is that they needed to get more fish in and they should eat a wide range, then that's probably good enough for them, right? I don't need to know exactly how my cell phone works. If I was eating with somebody, let's say I was eating with my relatives who live in Ontario in central Canada, right, to treat every gram of fish with great suspect traits. Right? <laughs> um, I mean, they would, I mean, they wouldn't stay in the same room if we were boiling lobsters, you know, and just the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the odor that comes off from, you know, the lobster cooking is enough to make them flee the house. I mean, it would be nice for them to know, like, they're like, there's good reasons to eat fish. Um, it would be nice to be able to say that all of these fish were 
sustainably harvested or caught or produced or whatever it is, and that they're good for you and that um, they were prepared by chefs. I mean, most people get turned off by fish because the fish isn't very good, right? I mean, there's certain fish that sort of have a certain taste to them, but um, if you get a good chef producing fish for you, then, I mean, you should hear angels singing, you know, with regard to, uh, <laughs> you know, the food you eat with a good glass of wine and, uh, you know, there's nothing better. Hmm. See, I didn't expect this. You've surprised me then because I didn't expect it to go down in the culinary route. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that you're, you know, what would you ask? What would you want them to know about the fish? You know, I mean, there's so many levels about that with regard to mm. biology. I mean, you could talk about biology, but that's really only interesting, really, really interesting to biologists, mm. right? And, you know, you get a bunch of scientists all talking and they're talking about biology for the most part. Um, you know, if you're going to talk to them about how they were harvested, you know, that's that's changing. I mean, I think if you and I have this conversation in 50 years, this won't be what we're talking about at all in, in fishing. I mean, there may still be some fishing going on. I think it's going to change dramatically. Um, mm -hmm. But that's, I've been wrong before. But um, I think that, uh, you know, that's, this is sort of like a temporal topic. Um, mm -hmm. What else do we want them to know about fish? I think there's, you know, the, it's it's part of the, it's part of our food system and it's part of the ecosystem on the planet that, you know, I think it needs to be treated with respect. And if we're going to harvest them, then we need to do it the right way. Hmm. Or culture well, the purpose the right of the way. question was to open up a bit of your personality and, and get, so, <laughs> so and, and it did it did its job. So, um, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sean Robinson, it, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure. Thank you for coming on the podcast and you're welcome All back right. anytime. <laughs> anyway, thanks. It was good fun. Yep. I haven't done something like this before. So uh, it's uh, it was good having a chat with you. Final, final question, which is unrelated to anything we've said so far. Where is the best place to go diving? Where? In in the world? Yeah, yeah. Where if if you if you could recommend uh, some places to go diving, where would they be? Um, I've done most of my diving in temperate water. Um, but I have been diving a bit in the Bahamas. Um, I did a tiny little bit of snorkeling in Venezuela, but those aren't really the destination places where you go <laughs> if you were gonna if if you really wanted to see tropical reefs right now um well i would go to your your home state of australia to you know get on the barrier reef it's in big trouble right now um mm -hmm. so you probably should go to look at it while it's still got some pristine value indonesia is apparently a very good place to go diving although i've never been there mm -hmm. but it depends what you want like lots of people want to go see bright shiny things and that's not necessarily me. I mean, I'm interested as an ecologist, I'm interested in all sorts of different areas. I mean, one of the early dives that I took wasn't with a scuba tank, but was in a submarine. And <laughs> we were dealing with um, uh, Saanich Bay. So this was in the early 90s. And so I begged and pleaded to get on the, the research submarine. And finally, they let me go just to shut me up, probably. But um, anyway, we sank down through the water. So we're in 200 meters. Do you have to go just out of curiosity? No, no, no. No, okay. So, um, so we're in probably 200 meters of water 
And Saanich Inlet is, is, is fairly deep, um, but it also has a sill. So in, in oceanographic terms, a sill is kind of like a, um, a wall. You know, like if you think of a fjord mm -hmm. going in, well, it, it's not all river valley all the way along. It's like there's a, some, you know, smaller mountains sitting there in the valley. And so there's, there's a bowl that's created in behind it. Okay, so it sills, and so that means a lot oceanographically is how water comes in and out and oxygen exchange and blah, 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 right? Well, it turns out, so we're sinking down into this Saanich Basin, and it was the first time, like I'd done lots of plankton toes and whatnot by then, and but it integrates everything as you pull a plankton, mesh plankton net up from, say, 20 or 30 meters or whatever it is, you know, you get the, you get a bunch of stuff in a jar at the top, but you don't really see the structure in the water. So as I'm sinking down, you can actually physically see it getting greener down around seven or eight meters because that's where the phytoplankton concentrate, hmm. you know, and it's because the light levels are optimum. So they can adjust their depth to get down to that level. And then you can see a copepod layer where the copepods are for whatever reason they're doing it. Maybe there's better oxygen, maybe they're, and they're not that far away from the the chlorophyll max or the this phytoplankton layer because that's where their food is and then you go down further and you can see euphosids which are like a big shrimp a midwater shrimp and then you go down there and there were spawning herring and then we sank down so you see these layers in the ocean that are happening out there and they happen all the time we just don't see them and then as you drop down we got to the effectively the top of the sill although we couldn't see the sill but it creates, because the water doesn't move, the bacteria remove all the oxygen from the water, right? Because they respire, same as you and me. So there's a dead zone. And that, so it creates a dead zone, except for the anaero anoxic or the, the anaerobic bacteria, right? Which don't need oxygen. They'll use sulfur or something like that. But it changes the properties of the water, and the water goes like a diluted milk. And so you're sinking down through this really dilute milk to the bottom, and all there is is these sulfur bacteria you know, uh, on the bottom in mats and, and dead things that have fallen or died and fallen into this and are slowly being decomposed by these bacteria. And then as you, the submarine gets to the bottom and then goes up the bowl and you get towards the edge of the milk bowl and bottom, all of a sudden you start seeing some things which are, can hold their breath or whatever, stand a little bit of anoxia to run in to grab some of the dead things and pull them out so they can eat them in the oxygen layers. And there's shrimp and prawns and octopus and fish and stuff like this as you get out near this interface because of all the dynamics that are happening there. And, you know, it's like seeing stuff like that is gives you a feeling for how important it is not only to see it, but also gives you a, a feeling for the complexity. Because if all you ever did was pull a net up, you wouldn't get the feeling for what that three-dimensional structure was and all the dynamics that are happening within that, you know? So, you know, cameras are helping us a lot now and mm -hmm. drones and ROVs and, you know, all that, that sort of stuff. But I don't know, it's, um, it's, it's been, a like those, those sorts of dives really left a strong impression on me on the importance of, of, you know, as an ecologist of trying to see this sort of stuff and, get a really good feeling for the dynamics that are going on because you can you can drop a an oxygen meter down and you can tell where the bowl was and how deep it was and you can describe it physically but it doesn't come close to showing the dynamics that are that are happening within that
Does it change your perspective of how important you are? Because there, it's like an alien world. That there are there are all of these lives that are going on completely separate to you. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. if you're here or not. They're just doing their thing and, and going on. Does it sort of change your perspective of your place in a world? Or oh sure, oh yeah. I've I would have to. Well, I'm I'm a bit bizarre anyway in the sense that. I look at all life through a biological lens, including humans, you know? So, you know, I think that we're, we're quite a bizarre species, you know, we're, we're, we're fairly in love with ourselves and egocentric. And we've, you know, we, we think we've isolated ourselves from any density dependent processes. So, you know, when you think about, you know, any species, you know, when Trevor was talking there, last time you know you were asking him do you think we've replaced ourselves as the top predators and you know know, replacing sharks or whatever it was and i i would say not quite because sharks are part of the ecosystem have been a part of the ecosystem for you know millions of years and they're subject to all the forces that happen to things within the ecosystem you know so if food goes up yeah then you're Go ahead, have more sex, have more babies, you know, all that sort of stuff. But when food goes down, um, then your numbers go down, you know, or if there's a disease that comes along, you know, because your two your densities are too high and it's easier to spread, you know, the, the naturally existing pathogens around and they get to, you know, epidemic levels. Okay, great, you're done. But hey, humans aren't like that. We we engineer out engineer. I mean, think of COVID, right? I mean we brought vaccines on the market so nobody you know relatively few of us are actually going to die from covid in comparison to those that get exposed to it or something like this as opposed to you know like Yersinia pestis the black death back in the you know middle ages so you know we've we're not really top predators because we don't fit in the ecosystem we we engineer everything to to stop and when we needed when our food supply was going down you know in the in the victorian period what did we come up with artificial fertilizers because we didn't have enough manure to go around so we came up with artificial fertilizers right when we're thinking about climate change or trying to out engineer climate change not we're not going to modify our practices or our birth rates or anything like that god forbid you know mm-hmm. so i don't know we're, we're a weird we're a weird species I guess the exciting thing is also right now you can sort of see we're on the verge of very soon we might have a situation where we really can pull ourselves away from the natural you know circle of life we 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 will be able to have indoor farms let's say cultured meat and completely separate ourselves it doesn't seem so crazy that we could one day do this maybe i don't know but i mean we can take the star trek view of you know we'll have our food (laughs) replicator you know build whatever we want but we're but that's that's based on ignorance right i mean we don't understand um the role that you know i keep coming back to this microbiome because i think this is such an incredibly important new wave you within human history that we're actually finding out about this maybe too late but you know like that i think there's intangibles that are happening within the microbiome and if you want another show 
that would be a perfect one to talk about. I mean, with regard to human <laughs> health and whatnot, it's not so much in the environment yet. I mean, we're using it to, I mean, there's some real clever guys doing some of this down in New Zealand, um, Xavier Pochon and uh, Nigel Keeley. But, um, you know, the human health is driving a lot of the science and, the, and, you know, what's, what's happening with it. Um, I'm part of a, an international group that's working on it. Um, a bunch of Europeans, uh, it's, it's mostly in the Atlantic right now, but includes South America as well. But, you know, like they're, they're looking at like one of the things that's happening with climate change is that sea levels are rising to a certain extent, right? So this is flooding, not, not in a major way, but salt water is in, is intruding into low areas are growing out and some, some, um, crops are not able to handle the slight increase in salinity of the water. Right. So it's gone from fresh to, to low brackish. But if you have a certain bacterial population in there, apparently that can help the plants adapt to some of this stuff. Who knew? Right. Mm. But as opposed to having a successful crop or no crops, you know, mm. like that's a huge thing that some of that stuff is coming out of uh, the Netherlands. Mm. You know, like there's a, there's a guy over there I know is doing some work there. So, so much, so much stuff going on with regard to, uh, you know, like the, this new, this new science, all because of the genetic technology that's come out so they can actually identify things. Mm. Still, I, I think if, if you push, if you push the boundary out enough years, then I can imagine the Star Trek world, um, even in my mm. own ignorance, I can, Im- <laughs> I can imagine it's getting question. there one day. Right. So, so maybe that's the, and, and maybe we do get there. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm more in the, you know, if you look at the Lord of the Rings, you know, saga, maybe I'm more of an elf that feels that we, uh, you know, we have to live within our, live within our environment. I mean, we could engineer, but it's a deterministic view somewhat that you're looking at and that, you know, because we don't really understand all the nuances of actually even how we live, like we still don't even know what we should be eating exactly. Hmm. You know, I mean, there's, and now we're going to head out on a brave new world, you know, on, you know, to infinity and beyond and grow our own foods. Well, maybe we can produce the basic nutrients we want, but maybe there's a whole bunch of micronutrients or whatever Mm. that are being produced by the bacteria like in our systems and they've already shown they do that the Mm. question is so they do that through prebiotics what is the name for it right and that's basically those things in our diet that those particular bacteria need you know Mm. and it may not just be the the assemblance of amino acids and, and fatty acids you know put together in some carbohydrates you know, into a 3D printed burger, you know, that's, that's going to give us everything we need. And I mean, we could die out quite easily if we didn't have those micronutrients or we'd have to evolve or the bacteria would have to evolve to do something else. And, and whether that can happen in time, I don't know, but we don't know enough about it to really project it. But I don't know of anybody that's really looking at that either. Maybe this is one of all... the Maybe this is one of the strongest arguments for trying to colonize Mars. <laughs> it's gonna, it's gonna force us to learn this stuff. Maybe, and 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 I think you know, but we tried some of that. Like we we wouldn't even have to go to Mars necessarily. I mean, we tried, 
what were the name of those enclosures um biodomes or something like this two i think well there was one and two right i mean i think one is one is the earth no 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 these were the ones that were in california right so they they basically put people in that was in nail it came out of the 70s or 80s maybe and they tried to they tried to put in this um self sustaining Mm-hmm. you know entity that people lived in and they were supposed to stay there for a year or whatever and i think that it was um i forget the name of it but it was a dismal failure not only because you know systems didn't didn't work exactly the way they were supposed mm-hmm. to in the long term but also social problems people had living mm-hmm. in close quarters and da 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 so i don't know maybe we go to mars you know maybe we take matt damon with us because he seems to be able to grow potatoes there right and survive so you know? I think the I think the problem with Biodome Two was that they didn't factor in the curing of the concrete in the building, so that sucked up all the oxygen. <laughs> and I, but I think after you've had a few colonies die, you work out the concrete issue. Well, it's you know <laughs> it's 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 cool stuff, no question. I mean, it it gets a lot of people out of bed in the morning, and mm. you know I've been reading some of it. I mean, I, I like the whole tech side of it, and the fact that they're talking about sending up 3d printers up there to build everything, mm. you know, so just using the sand and dust and, you know, creating building structures. So we don't have to take up, you know, plywood with us to get there. Mm. Yeah. I mean, on the other side of things, if we do this, it might help us to appreciate what we actually have here on earth. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I mean, providing we don't get to a point where we, you know, we have to uh, we have to leave because it's so crowded and that we've ruined our planet, right? Mm. It's like the what was it called? Um, oh, um, it was a movie that was uh, about that about how you know you, you just anyway, dumb and dumber people like the what was it called? Idiocracy. That was what mm-hmm. it was called. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've watched it or something like this. It was a it's bit of a brilliant. cult thing. Yeah, yeah I, I thought it was too. And, uh, you know, it's obviously not true, but, but you know, you could see the premise going on. And uh, so, I don't know, maybe maybe some of your work needs to go on. I mean, if you're looking at bouncing galaxies, then, you know, maybe you can uh, project these wormholes so that we don't have to take, you know, forever and a day to get there. I think if we're relying on my research to save humanity, we're in big trouble. Oh, is that right? But, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need a marketing man then, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>